Hello, and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast, your source for interviews with people from all across the tropical fish keeping hobby. I'm your host, Randy Reed. Please subscribe and check out all previous episodes on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or AquarisPodcast.com. You can also check out additional content by following the Aquarius Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts. If you like what you hear, please rate and leave a review for the show. Enjoy the interview. Today's date is Friday, July 6th, 2018. My guest today is Lucas Bretz. Lucas is the owner of LRBAquatics.com, an online retailer of shrimp, snails, fish, and plants. Lucas maintains a large collection of tanks where he breeds and propagates inventory for his online sales. Lucas is constantly experimenting with different techniques and methods for keeping aquaria, which he shares on his popular YouTube channel. Lucas has bred his own strain of endler guppies called the Rainbow Tiger Endler. Lastly, if he needed more credibility to his name, Lucas holds the most awards for international shrimp competitions in the USA. So Lucas, thank you for joining me on the Aquarius Podcast. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Hope you're doing well. Uh, yeah, I'm doing very well. Um, you know, it's about nine ten here on the West Coast. It is, you know, tomorrow for you. So you are East Coast, uh, you know, midnight for you. So thank you very much, Lucas, for staying up late with me. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the uh, the audience will definitely appreciate it. You've got a lot of experience and a lot of cool stuff that you've done. So I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm uh, kind of used to these late hours anyways. Most people who know me and watch me on YouTube know I stay up pretty late. Even go live stream every now and then at these kind of hours. So it's it's nothing new to me. Oh, good time. So, so Lucas, what is your origin story, man? So how did you get your start in the uh, hobby keeping tropical fish and shrimp and plants? So I've been in and out of the hobby multiple times, but originating like very start of it had to do with my dad he had a 55 gallon tank that he kept oscars in also goldfish stuff like that but he always kept like a couple 10 gallons around the house i'm um, guessing for quarantine and hospitals and whatnot and i i would spend most of my summers out in the country i used to live in the city like half the year and then in the country half the year and we go out in the creeks and whatnot and go catch rainbow darters, any minnows we could find, small bluegills, crawdads, snakes, all kinds of stuff. And so we'd try keeping those in tanks. And often my stepmom would either get bit by them or something like that. So we'd have to get rid of them. But anyways, I that kind of turned me on to it. I've always been a lover of nature. And then eventually around middle school, my dad finally let me have my own tank, which was a 29 high. And I kept a lot of like tank, uh, the Rominos, the Tetras, the Brilliant Rasboras, the more common ornamental fish and um, really enjoyed it. But it is all artificial. I had it kind of looking natural, but artificially natural. And then I ended up going to college for quite a while, took a hiatus. Because I just didn't have time for a tank, working full-time, going to school full-time. And eventually I got done with school. And I had a little free time, started getting online. And started looking at the local fish store, actually, before I got online. And I ended up setting up a tank. And I started going the artificial route again. And then I just happened to bypass the plant section. And after that, and this was probably like 
16 years ago or so. After that, I was just sold. Actually, no, it may have been like 14 years ago. But I just fell in love with the plants. I started putting plants in the tanks, and then that's when I started diving online. Started getting into all the forums. Like back in the day, uh, a lot of the knowledge that you could get wasn't from YouTube or Facebook or Instagram because they didn't even exist. YouTube was just like just getting around. And all the uh, plants and stuff were on forums like plantedtank.net, Aquatic Plant Central, and a couple others. And you could get all kinds of rare plants. That was the only place to really get them. And I actually just started, as a hobbyist, just started keeping a bunch of these different plants and then would sell them back to help fund the hobby. And then I learned that, hey, I can propagate these plants and help fund my hobby. And I thought that was really cool and then just really dove into the plants. And the next thing you know, I started getting into the shrimp and then started getting into the fish and actually took another hiatus because at that time, the only way to really make something of it was to get a brick and mortar store. And my means want to be able to fill that because that's an extra rent bill. That's extra insurance. That's extra utility. And I just couldn't afford that. So took a hiatus, was just trying to structure my life again because it was a reset. I had a bad relationship and all that stuff and got over all that. And then finally got my feet grounded again and then started getting back into it. And then my other, my uh, significant other, my lady, she, uh, she was cool with it. So she let me run with a few tanks. Now I did here. I have uh, too many tanks quite a few times, but I kind of ignored that and just kept hitting up those dollar gallon cells. And now I'm up to uh, up around 200 tanks. I'm about to be around 300 or so really soon here once I get this fry rack system done. So I've, I, I, I really got hooked and I, I've been hooked for quite some time. Yeah, definitely. And to kind of to talk about, I mean, there's a couple things I want to go back and and ask you about. But uh, most recently, so you're on 200 tanks right now. Uh, that spans more than just one fish room, correct? Right. It's in about seven different sections of your house. So it's of my house. Yeah. So it kind of kept growing. It all started in one spot. And then eventually I moved into another room like, okay, I need tanks for this to get this done. Like whether it be calling out shrimp, like trying to straighten out my blue dream line. Um, for the people who don't know, I have a super straight blue dream line. I do contest anybody in the world that I do have the straightest blue dream line. If anybody has bred them, they know they throw all kinds of crazy stuff, but they are straight. But anyway. I started in that room and then it trickled into another room and then another room. And then I'm just like, where can I put a tank here? Where can I put this here? That in itself almost becomes an addiction too, as well as the collectoritis of plants and shrimp and fish and stuff. But you know, you only live once. So you gotta, you gotta run with your passions. Like my time will be filled forever till the day I die and I won't regret it. You know, like, yeah, people go on vacations. You can do that kind of stuff. For me, this is this is like my vacation. 
So I don't feel like I have to run away from home. This is where I want to be, you know? So it, I mean, granted, sometimes it does have its stress. I won't lie. Like there's often I pull all nighters, but I often think about what else I could be doing instead. And I wouldn't want to do anything else besides what I'm doing now at the time. So what was the breaking point, I guess, for your significant other where she just, you know, stopped saying you have too many tanks? Because obviously now at this point, she just it's just a part of the decor in the house, I would have to assume. Um, And she's given up all hopes of trying to, you know, (laughs) (laughs) battle and whittle away at your tank collection because it's only on the on the upswing right now. So, I mean, how many tanks, like how many years into this before she just threw her hands up and was like, you know what, if you're happy, cool, um, you do your thing. So really, I never got a whole lot of friction. Like she still enjoyed them and stuff. I think it was just like she felt like she had to mention something. Like maybe contest to see how uh, willing I was to go that far for the tanks, whether I would hit that wall or not. But I figured if she loves me, she'll stay. So, <laughs> and you... since she didn't push too hard, and you know, that's awesome. Is there yeah. is there a sanctuary in the house though where she's like, if you put a tank in this room or this space, I'm leaving you. Does she? Is there at least that line in the sand? No, or no, no, no. She's never drawn a line on me. Oh, so that's, I've been lucky in that sense. Never drawn a line on me. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, I, I guess to go back, I mean, the one, the one thing I want to uh, to go back on is you said your dad had an Oscar and a fifty-five gallon, right? Right. So I guess for a the of them actually. maybe for the American and the the Canadian listeners, is is that is the Oscar and a 55 gallon kind of the equivalent of like having a Trans Am in the driveway? Is it, is that kind of like just the, the standard um, American fare for Aquaria back in like the eighties and nineties? Oh yeah. Back in the day, that was the staple for sure. Like That, it, that was hot. Yeah. I think, I think I had, 90s. as I try and recall more, I'm pretty sure I had an aunt that had an Oscar and a 55 gallon. I've no, I know I've been to a couple friends house growing up and even, you know, in high school in the, the late nineties, early two thousands, I for sure went to a friend's house that they had an Oscar uh, in a 55 gallon. But yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I feel like that's a quintessential part of if you're a, a millennial or if you're a, you know, even a baby boomer keeper, um, and you were around aquariums in the in the eighties and nineties. Like, you either had the Oscar in the fifty five, or you knew somebody that had the Oscar in the fifty five. And as people know, I love my Oscar fish that I had, and I want to have them again. Uh, but it's just it, it's just so funny to to hear you know how common it was to have the Oscar. Yeah, it is pretty wild how that is. So, Lucas, let's talk about, um, you know, how do you upkeep, you know, your fish room? I mean, having that many uh, <laughs> fish tanks, like, what does your water change system look like? Um, how do you heat it? What's filtration like? Okay, so, as far as the water, I pump all my water in. I used to use my tap, but I can no longer trust my tap. They're always either throwing something down in without me knowing, whether it be algaecite or there's a fungus coming through it or something. And uh, I just can't trust it anymore. So I started doing RO, but I did plumb all my tanks up to a PEX system, which is kind of like PVC, but a little different. And uh, I can drain and fill. I don't sit my RO. I do directly stick it straight in my tanks. 
And um, as far as heating it, I just heat all the rooms. Besides in the wintertime, I've got to heat the bottom of the tanks because the concrete will emit a lot of the cold from outside. But once you heat up the bottom ones, they'll emit the heat up top and it usually stabilizes off everything. But a big way and reason why I get away with the upkeep, now I still siphon all my tanks and I manually do the outflow. Eventually, some of the stands might change from that, but a lot of that helps me look inside of the tanks and see what's going on with them or just clean them up in general as far as like getting all the excess algae that's eating up the excess nutrients. Algae will always be part of a tank, and it all de depends on the balance of your nutrients and everything. But as far as uh, what makes it the easiest is the fact that I keep everything naturally. And that's like the number one key to it all is just finding that balance, which even nature will find its balance in one form of another. So if you don't have any plants, for instance, or enough plants, you'll start getting more algae growth and stuff like that because you don't have the plants to eat up the nutrient intake. And once you figure out those different kind of balances within the light and the plants and all that, it all just, I don't know, it becomes a lot more simple. You got to try to keep it simple. A lot of people try to complex this hobby a lot more than it really needs to be. Not saying that it's not complex because I often run into a ton of contradictions through uh, what people say, what the natural status quo answer to a question is. And I will admit, the more I do find these contradictions and everything else, the more confusing it will get. But when you look at it, the simple, pure fact of what Mother Nature is doing and just the balance of it all, it makes it a lot more simpler than trying to fight like little parameters and stuff like that, which can cause a lot of issues with people when they just try to pinpoint pH this, that, and other, and they're trying to mess with it too much. That's usually a downfall of most keeping. But once you let Mother Nature in, and that means like getting live plants, getting some algae in there or something. Then it's a whole different ball game and it's a lot easier. Like all my filtration, it's all sponge filters. Some of them don't even have any filtration. That's mostly my endlers and guppies. And that's because you, the endlers and plants and guppies have this symbiotic relationship that is just to die for in the aquarium world. They will keep and grow all kinds of plants because they're oxygen and CO2 exchange with each other. And then the waste for the plants and is just super beneficial. You don't even need an air stone or anything. And it's one of those tanks that doesn't cost you anything because all you need is the tank, some water, some plants, and some fish, and some substrate or rocks, which you can even go get dirt out of your backyard if you don't do pesticides and all that stuff. But it's a really easy way to keep uh, aquariums when you kind of look at it that way. So, Lucas, uh, l let's let's break that down to kind of a practical um, scenario of let's say, you know, somebody's got a 29-gallon, right? They've got a 29-gallon. Let's assume that there is um, already some seeded bacteria in, in a filter. Let's say a buddy has given them um, a seeded sponge filter to, to get them going on bacteria, um, and I know you're familiar with uh, with rainbow fish. You do keep them. Uh, let's say they're going to start with, you know, two male rainbows, uh, Praycox rainbows, 
um, and, you know, four females, right? So we've got six rainbow fish in a 29 gallon that's going to be seeded with bacteria. Is there like a ballpark like, hey, in that kind of setup, here are the plants or here's the plant mass that I would start with if I was Lucas Brett setting this up. And that should be a good start, like, right? Because, I mean, somebody could either, you know, there's one of two approaches that they could put, like, one Anubius in that 29-gallon and say, cool, I've got a plant in there. Or they could spend, you know, $200 on plants from the local fish store and just plant the crap out of it, right? No, they're not even going to wait for propagation. They're going to cover every square inch of that thing um, in plants, you know, assuming they've got a good substrate, maybe some some eco-complete mixed with something else or, you know, one of, one of the good substrate brands out there. Um, you know, what would you think in that scenario would be kind of a good rule of thumb of, you know, a good number of plants to start with um, to point them in the right direction for Mother Nature to do its thing? Okay, for that scenario, now, if you do go to the local fish store, most likely the plants that you're going to be getting are grown from a farm, and they're grown in their merge form. So when you do put all those plants together in there, you got to think about all that merge form is going to die off in your tank. Now, as far as the rule of thumb, uh, more plants to start off with, the better, because it's going to help balance the nutrients and the algae and everything else because when you have a first your tank first cycling off it's going to try to uh, eat up or show a bunch of algae because there's a bunch of nutrients already built up in it so anytime you can pull out those faster with more plants the better um, and like you said other sometimes people just put like one or two plants in there and just start it from there and just let it kind of do its thing I've done that but amassing enough plants to start off a 29 gallon it does cost a little more so it kind of has to do with the budget of the person as well but just keep in mind the merch growth a lot of people forget about that when they put in these plants and they're dying off they're losing their leaves and they're wondering what's wrong with it and then they just think it's just no good throw it away or whatever you do just gotta you want to make sure you get that decaying leaf from the emerge form out and then the submerged growth uh, once it starts going you'll be good but it's something to think about because that emerge growth is not going to be eating up the nutrients like the submerged growth would be so you can actually cause more trouble with a bunch of emerge growth plants trying to transition in a 29 opposed to just maybe a couple plants that have already been grown submerged so there's a difference between there as well. Yeah, so that, that's a great insight then. And let me, so then let me uh, throw out my usual public service announcement and tell people to join your local fish club, get connected with people in your area, maybe like, you know, your your version of a Bentley Pasco that is an absolute uh, animal when it comes to propagating plants or even a Lucas Brett's um, and get their own personal plant trimmings and, and plants from their collection that they're maybe selling at the auctions or selling through various channels uh, because then they're already going to be used to being submerged and you won't have to go through that die-off, you know, Lucas, like you're already talking about. So, um, you know, if, I mean, to me, I guess that would be the ideal route, right? So so using your advice of put as many plants in as, as you can, um, but then if you're also going to go the route of, of getting your plants from a hobbyist in your area, right, they're already, you know, they're not immersed, they're going to be submerged. Uh, I'm assuming they're, they're submerged plants, and you're going to get them at a, you know, fairly you know, good price compared to if you were to pay full retail for those at a, at a local fish store. 
Yeah, most definitely. Local clubs, if you have any chance to go to any of the clubs near you, I know some people don't have them near them, but if you do and you're in this hobby, even if you only have a tank or two, I would say the $20 a year that most of them ask, some are 20, some are 30, some are here and there, you know, it's a very, very cheap amount to pay for the knowledge and the type of plants and fish you can get because around here, I mean, shoot, you get all kinds of fish and plants for cheap that would cost you a lot more elsewhere. Like the deals you get, the knowledge you get is just, yeah, definitely check out your local clubs for sure. And Lucas, your area, you are in uh, Indianapolis. So do you have a local fish club you want to give a shout out to? We do. We have the Circle City Aquarium Club. Yeah, and so it's, yeah, a, it's a pretty good. What, what's a bummer, I guess, and sorry to cut you off, is that for work, I've actually been to Indy, um, you know, probably three or four times in the past couple of years. And, you know, had, had I had been doing this show and had I connected with somebody like you or the Circle City Club, you know, to be able to come out and hang out with you guys and come out to one of your fish club meetings, depending on what day of the week it is. But yeah, I've definitely been out to uh, Indianapolis several times for work. Well, yeah, you'll have to let me know when you come by next time. Yeah, we'll we'll do. So let let's talk about some more of your experiments then. So what are what are some of the experiments in the past that you know um, maybe you can highlight it, keep it highlighted to your biggest successes, your biggest surprises from an experiment standpoint. Um, maybe what are some of your painful failures in the experiments, uh, and then also I do want you to talk about freshwater clams at some point as well. So I'll go ahead and turn it. I'll turn it back over to you. All right. So as far as the experiments um let's see shrimp i got real popular with the shrimp because i was mixing them i mixed them a long time ago when everybody was telling you not to mix them and everybody thought they'd all just turn brown and whatever and that was like four years ago and then i got back on facebook and i'm like hey everybody this isn't the case and i had this colony for like four years where they just were breeding all kinds of crazy stuff from like purple pink green everything else in between like even yellows with red spots and other crazy things and when you say mix, and, uh, you're, you're talking like you're taking are these neocaridinas and like so you're taking cherry shrimp and throwing those in with all the different color variants or are you doing caridinas right right no the uh neocaridinia okay i should have specified that no no yeah. no worries but uh yeah because caridinia it's a little different story on how they relate their traits is completely different than neos but back in the day yeah nobody everybody mentioned that you just can't mix them together and i just went ahead and did it anyways just because i guess i don't listen well and uh i ended up yeah making all kinds of shrimp that was really cool and then the rainbow tiger inlers i ended up getting a pair of blue star inlers and some regular yellow jackets and mix them together and they ended up breeding pretty true and worked them just for a little while, a couple of years. And then next thing you know, they caught on fire and everybody wanted them, took them up to aquatic experience one year and everybody fell in love with them. And now they're all over the place, which I never thought would ever happen. I, I just, just, I don't know. It's just, well, I mean, there's a lot of things in life. You never think that'll happen to happen. And it's pretty cool that it did. And that actually motivated me to work on more other projects. There's other types of strains of shrimp I'm working on. Um, I don't get a whole lot of time for the, but like recently, a couple last videos I did, 
was on a purple neocaridinias. I recently created a colony of those from scratch. And now I'm working on some other inler types as well, which I've got a few in the works too. To, to give the audience perspective on like what what kind of work does it actually take to get a, a rainbow a rainbow tiger inler? Like how many how many successive generations are you having to breed and to selectively breed um, of that particular inler, or of like in this shrimp experiment for the purple neocaridinias? Like how many how many how much cull well, not culling, but I guess how much um, you know, maybe it is culling. Are, are you having to do to make sure that you've only got the specimens in a given tank as a part of the breeding group that you want? Like, what does that look like? Okay. And as far as culling, I do want to specify this. I don't do any kill culling or anything like that. Everything has its home, whether it's oddball or not. But as far as the strains and what you got to cull and what you get out of it as far as the rates with endlers and shrimp, all vary on what you're going for. So it's really hard to tell. Sometimes you get lucky and you don't have to do hardly any. And sometimes you get really unlucky and you have to do a ton. For instance, like scarlet red endlers, they are really hard to straighten out. But my rainbow tiger endlers, I I really only had to go through like a generation or two to create those. It didn't really take much. And then same with the purple neocaridinias. They're actually on maybe their first or second generation, which is kind of crazy. That's a new experiment that just happened and kind of blows my mind that it perpetuated that fast with those guys. And where did those purples initially come from? Did they come from your big batch, oh, you know, rainbow mixed Skittle bag of... Uh, no, no, no. They've actually, see, I first created purples by doing that, and then I've kind of pinpointed it throughout the years. Like, I've had my guesses of which one's doing what between different color combinations that I've thrown around the fish room here and there. And then I did finally pinpoint it, but I can't give that out. I can't give that out. Oh no, no worries. Yeah, I no worries. I don't. I don't keep many trade secrets, but that is the one I am going to keep, just because I just now got into it and figured it out. I have mentioned it once on one of my live Q and A streams, so there is a couple people who know what the secret is. And, yeah, I just can't get that out. It, does that basically involve, like, so you figured it out and it's like, okay, boy of color X, girl of color Y, I pull those two shrimp only, right? Or or shrimp of only those colors where the boy is, the, is, is X and the girl is Y, and I put them in a tank and I let them go to town. Is that, in that, is that how selective that is? Yes. Yes, for the most part, yes. Awesome. And so it's like you're, you know, it's like when I you're a little say like kid. like two boys, two girls of two different color groups. I was going to say, so it's like when you're a little kid, you know, and you, and you discover for the first time that when you mix a couple crayons together and it makes a whole new color, you're super excited, right? Like that's, right, that seems right. like a really yeah. awesome discovery. Exactly. And that, I mean, that's what brings a lot of joy and passion to it for me because you kind of get to play mad scientists and create cool things and, I don't know. It's it's fun to do. Like if you try to do that with rainbow fish or something, no, no, no. You get frowned upon real fast because hybrids aren't, which which makes sense because there's so many of them out in nature that you don't really need to muck up the lines and strains of rainbows like that. But it, 
like the endlers and the shrimp, it's fun that there are fish out there that it's already gone so far that same with betas or bettas, however you want to say it. Um, I, th- I think it adds a lot of fun to the hobby. Yeah, I think on the note of the uh, mixing rainbows, I think Gary Lang himself actually will will fly out to your home wherever you live and uh, try to hit you upside the head. <laughs> oh yeah, you'll be lucky if that's all he does to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so Lucas, what are what are some of your you know painful or you know unfortunate failures from your experiments where um, you know something just really didn't pan out or it really didn't work, like and just crashed hard? I would say. Any of the most painful, anytime any of the fish die, you know, like shrimp aren't as heartbreaking because there's so many of them, which still sucks when you do lose some, but I don't lose enough or really had a wipe out to do so. Actually, there was one, I used to have this black rose colony and I got as far as creating a tricolor Neo. So I had a red, blue and a black looking Neocaridinia had three different colors on it. They were super awesome, super awesome line. And I uh, ended up bringing the show shrimp back from the aquatic experience. These shrimp actually took first place. And uh, something came back with them and the colony kind of died. So now I don't ever bring anything back from shows without quarantining them. I've had my lessons of quarantining like a lot. I'm sure a lot of us have. And just like even little projects, like say you're trying to breed some bettas and uh, the male kills the female or vice versa and you come down, you're hoping for babies, but you got one that just didn't like the other and just little things that are out of your control, stuff like that just really sucks. Do you sometimes feel like... So any... Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, so sometimes do you feel like if if your fish room wasn't as large and you didn't have as many tanks that... Um, you know, do you ever feel guilty that maybe that wouldn't have happened if, if you were th- a little bit more present with those particular experiments or, you know, does it, does it kind no. of feel like something that, you know, it, it would have happened when you were sleeping, right? We have to sleep, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the most part, the deaths that happen around here are just out of my control or just fish cancer, you know, something that just happens and just things you got to roll with. Luckily, there's not a whole lot of that, which was what I was getting to my point of what I've learned from all my failures and stuff is anytime that you can take out any chance of human error from the equation, you can get away with a lot more. And I think that's what leads into a lot of my excess and that our success. And that uh, goes back to the whole keeping things naturally is you just let the environment and ecosystem kind of keep itself like, yeah, I fart my tanks and do feed my plants and stuff, but that's kind of necessary. But if you know how to balance it with uh, knowing what they're uptaking and what you're outtaking as far as the water, it makes things a lot easier. And just anytime you can take that human error equation out, like fighting your pH, fighting your TDS, fighting this, that, and other, like you got to use the right fish or the right shrimp for the right kind of water. Yeah, that's really great insight. Work with what you got. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, great insight. Um, on the note of one of your experiments, you know, and you've actually talked about it a, a little bit earlier already, of you know using backyard soil, assuming you're not using any uh, fertilizers or any um, pesticides or anything like that. Um, 
I, I have a, a Wallstead tank that I set up, my 10-gallon that, um, you know, capped with two inches of gravel. Um, I use the organic potting soil that I sifted to get all the larger pieces out so it wouldn't cloud the water. And that tank, you know, fully planted, well, planted uh, fairly well from the beginning, but it's taken off. It's an absolute jungle with three sparkling grammies and red cherries and, and uh, ram's horns and, and uh, pond snails. And that thing is doing awesome. It's rocking and rolling, and I'm absolutely loving that tank. Um, you know, using the soil from your ground though, did you have to supplement and add in any additional, um, you know, organic, uh, nutrients to that? Or did you just straight take your soil from your backyard? You knew there were no pesticides, you capped it and you found it was perfectly fine. Oh, uh, definitely didn't have to use any additives or anything like that. Uh, what I do, what I like to do is... I'll go find a little, little patch if you got some woods or something, kind of brush away all the leaves and everything else, but scrape off like the first couple inches and then you start getting in a, a kind of me medium density and then you'll hit that clay. So I like to get a little mix of the clay and then a little bit of that middle ground. So I leave the topsoil off. Granted, the topsoil has probably got a lot more richness in it, but it's a lot looser as well. The other stuff will compact a lot better. The clay will hold a lot of the iron and longer-term minerals and stuff like that. Because I fert a lot of my tanks with the basic like macros and micros. Your uh, macros being your magnesium and your potassiums, and then your um, micros being your traces like iron and all that stuff. So the plants get supplemented from that. But as far as the roots. All that dirt has all the supplements for those roots that it needs. And you can kind of see it, too, when you're actually breaking up a lot of that dirt in the ground. It's kind of wild because you'll go through where, like, sticks have gone through time. So you'll see, like, a regular stick and then a stick that's kind of, like, halfway through decay. And then, like, a stick that still kind of looks like a stick, but then you touch it and it, like, turns to dust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, it's it's just the proof of the whole cycle and how the organics just keep just cycling each other. And it's the same with inside of aquarium. If you think about the aquarium the same way, like the leaves breaking down, the waste breaking down, the food you add can have some uh, effect to what's going on in your tank as well, mm -hmm. which isn't usually a big enough effect for most people to even think about or have to worry about, but it does add to it as far as like the mineralization is going in. Same with how often you do your water changes and stuff like that. So you've just got to think of it as a whole about what's coming in and what's going out. And on the note of what's going in in food, um, you you are fairly uh, minimalist in the amount and the and the types of food. Well, not not so much the amount, but in the type of food that you feed, right? Um, there there's kind of like one brand and one type of food that you're you're kind of known for. So what is that? <laughs> That's the tetratropical color granules. And a big reason why I use it is because my fish and shrimp just love it. Like I've tried to feed them a lot of different other stuff. And they will uh, put their nose up to it anymore. Like they've just, I don't know what they put in this stuff, but the fish and shrimp love it. And I love it because it's bright orange and I can really tell if I'm overfeeding because it just sits on top and it's bright orange, you know. 
Yeah, so I'm definitely, um, I've been using the uh, Tetra Flakes for a while. Um, and, and I think seeing that you're also, you know, that you're somebody that's also using uh, Tetra food and that, y- y- granted, it, it's something that, I don't know, I feel like it, the deeper you get into this hobby, the more you can turn your nose up to things that are super readily available in a big box store, right? Like, we think that we we become so knowledgeable and that there's very specialty foods that we should be feeding. Um, but sometimes, you know, some of the simple staples that have been around for a while uh, are really good. And they've been around for for a while for a reason. So, you know, for any listeners right. out there, you know, don't, don't be ashamed that you feed Tetra Flakes. And, you know, if you want to just have it be one of the foods in your arsenal, so be it. If you want to have it to be one of your main staples, so be it. Uh, but you've got Lucas Bretz, who is a, an incredibly successful aquarist, um, who swears by some of the Tetra product. Um, I'm trying out the Tropical Crisps right now. I'm on the fence about this particular Tetra food. I don't know if my, I don't think my fish yeah. like it nearly as much. I do need to try those granules though. I actually couldn't remember which Tetra you fed. So now that you've said granules, I'm going to go and pick up a small thing of that and, and see how my fish like the granules. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of the crisp myself. Now, as far as flake food, every once in a while, I will throw that to my antlers and guppies just because of the way they eat. It's really good for their behavior because they like to eat up off the surface. But as far as like flake food for other fish, I don't get into. But live food, if I did have the means and possibility, uh, black worms, the only problem with it is having a reliable enough source to know that you're not getting anything from your black worms coming in. It goes back into the what's going in, what's coming out thing. But live foods will do a wonder for uh fish as well i don't want to take that away at all because i have done it and i've been there and black worms actually if i were to go with a white food that would be the one i would go as far as my staple because they're also beneficial to planted aquariums going back to the natural state of things they help the substrate as well as your plant roots so they'll eat all the decaying roots which give room for new growth of roots uh, they churn over the substrate, they eat all the waste and the mold and just cycles it all through again. Yeah, so so definitely agree with you on that one of, you know, the importance of live food. Um, but again, you know, if, if uh, you're not doing live food or if you are doing live food and, you know, you still have to supplement with, with something that isn't a live product. I mean, if you're doing 100% live food, I mean, I guess good on you, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many of us out it's there. Not necessary, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how many of us out there are actually doing that. Um but yeah, you know, Tetra, not not too shabby. And uh, Tetra, if you want to come on the show and talk about your product, be more than happy to, to have you on. So that's a that's an open invitation to you or any other uh, big food manufacturer or uh, big aquatic company out there. So now, Lucas, all right, the, uh, the topic of the hour, the burning question, tell me about freshwater clams. So you want to know about the freshwater clams. All right, so I tried out these freshwater clams a few different types. I'll tell you what, they're not easy to keep. Most of them actually ended up dying. And the thing is, you only want to keep like one to a tank. And it's not just because of the feeding. It's they'll actually release hormones between each other and try to kill each other, which is kind of wild. Now, granted, it depends on the clam you have. I recently lost like my last clam. And it was in a green water tank and it's still green water. So I don't know if it really did its job. So my conclusion of the clam is I would not bother with them. 
because they really didn't work out that great. So, what was your? I, I guess what was the hypothesis? Um, you know, why did you why did you want to keep freshwater clams? And uh, maybe what were the species you got? And where did you get them from? If you're able to divulge that. So, as far as the species, you don't really ever get a species name when buying them. They'll just say freshwater clams. So I just bought a few off of eBay that just looked different. And um big reason why I wanted to keep them is since I was wanting to keep things more natural, they're kind of like a natural filtration, which they will work a little bit, but not to the extent. Like, I, I'm guessing, like, certain ones work better than others. What it really inspired me to try it was the video I saw where they threw a bunch of clams in a tank. It was like a dirty, murky tank. And these clams, like, over a certain amount of time just cleared it out. And I thought that was a great idea, but it didn't really, the experiments I ran, and I ran them in multiple tanks, probably about 10 to 12 tanks. And I I just didn't get the results that I was expecting. Not saying that it won't work, but as far as my experience, it didn't work out so well. What, was there like a splash radius of, you know, they, they're they releasing these hormones or trying to kill each other and then it impacted uh, fish health or plant health or anything like that? Um, I just, I think it only impacted them. I didn't really have any issues with any like fish deaths. They often say that if a clam dies in your tank, like you want to hurry up and get it out because it's already got all the toxins and other stuff. I didn't really run into that being an issue ever either. Like, as far as any fish deaths weren't really related towards it. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, as far as the hormone radius and stuff like that, I have no idea. Huh. But I thought it was a neat idea because if you're not keeping any filtration like I do, and once in a while I'll have, like, rainwater tanks from overlighting or maybe crypt garden melted down, and now I got a bunch of organics in the tank and it create some green water and just I figured it'd be an easy way to clean it up quick but I mean, learned that Daphnia cleans it up a lot better. The only problem with that is you can't have fish in there with Daphnia because they'll eat the Daphnia. When I talk about Daphnia I'm talking about the fake Daphnia too like the Magna Daphnias not the tiny Daphnias. Oh, okay. I mean, well, do you want to unpack that a little bit more? I guess what's uh, what's the difference? I, I, I've only been familiar with so the the small Daphnia. Yeah, there's multiple types of Daphnia. Um, some bigger, like the Moina, they're the smaller Daphnia. And then you've got the Magna, I believe is what they're called. M-A-G-N-A. And uh, they're probably three to four times the size of uh, regular Daphnia. And you can actually see them on my channel. I recently did a Scriddles tank this old third or Every Thursday, I do a series or try to do a series of this old tank, which is called TOT. And I covered the scriddle tanks that actually show those Magna Daphnia. And it's, it's kind of crazy how big they really are. They're actually kind of cool, if you ask me. And is that like an aqua bid or a, a, an eBay purchase to get those? Because I, I don't think I've ever seen those um, go up for, for sale on my local auctions in my area. Yeah, you can find them here and there. As far as where I got my, I ended up getting them at the American Library Association at their auction. So I guess it all depends on where you're at. I'm sure they have them on Aquabid. I sell them as well on my website. 
Oh, very cool. And I guess that'd be a good segue into, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up this interview. Uh, let's talk about LR, uh, LRBAquatics.com. How long have you been operating uh, that website? Uh, maybe give people kind of a rundown of, you know, a better description than I did of, of what you offer on the site um, and how people can get a hold of you. All right. So most people who already know me know that I'm uh, more of a hobbyist and a breeder than I am a salesman. So I don't usually push a whole lot of sales. And a lot of my stuff is actually in high demand. And most of the time for like my rare stuff, only Patreons get a hold of that. But I do have a lot of other stuff like plants and stuff that maintain in stock. Same with shrimp. I do have on my website, which has been up and running for like almost a year or maybe two. But I've been selling fish and shrimp for a long time. Like I've made a name for myself on Facebook before I even joined YouTube and everything else like that. Just to, you know, get my feet wet and everything. And yeah, if you got everything's all homebred, I don't import anything. So I, that's, that's been my main kicker is everybody usually turns over into the whole important thing because there's some money in the burning and turning some fish and shrimp. For me, it, it would be hard to deal with all the work of all the diseases coming in and all that stuff. It would just be more headache than what it's worth. And This way, by home breeding, uh, it just creates a better product for everybody. And I also promote home breeding, like, the more people we have in the USA breeding fish and stuff, the more the less we have to import. We import over 90% of all our fish, which is just crazy. Like there's so much room for backyard breeders and other people to be growing stuff and just helping their own family out and doing the, what they love if that's what they like to do. So my promotion is to promote other people as well. Yeah, very cool. That's a, that is a great attitude to have towards your uh, towards your business and, uh, you know, as being a hobbyist and wanting to ensure that your customers are, are getting the best quality product and that you're also helping to promote the hobby and, um, you know, help uh, help people to, to succeed. So I, I think that's definitely admirable and I, I definitely appreciate that, uh, Lucas. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I asked you to come on the show is, you know, it, not ever talking to you before, but um, seeing some of your interactions and knowing that that's your character. And um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that, I, that I'm in line with and, and I can appreciate and hopefully my audience does as well. And then lastly, uh, what's your, you know, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you directly, um, you know, what, uh, what would be some good channels or, or, you know, share your social media so that people know uh, where they can go to, to find you for these really cool videos and other insights that you provide? So you can find me mostly. My main platform would be YouTube. That's where I get most of my information and visuals and stuff like that. And then I've got an Instagram account. Facebook is all LinkedIn to Instagram and Twitter. So if you follow me on any three of those platforms, it's all pretty much the same. But YouTube is pretty much the best way to get a hold of me. If you got questions or comments, hit me up on one of my uh, videos. I'll I'll hit you back, especially if you got a question. And email, I don't really prefer as much because I got so much email. That's a, that's the hardest thing about doing all this is. The social media in it all almost takes as much time as the fish room does. And just find a balance in that can be really tricky sometimes. 
Yeah, I was gonna say I can imagine. I mean, you you do have um, a, a fairly large follower base, and you know, with the frequency of, of videos that you're putting out and the amount of content out there, I could definitely see how a lot of people would be reaching out to you for additional insights. And you know, hopefully, this conversation is just uh, one more way people can get the a, a little bit more of their fix of you know Lucas Brett's uh, LR Brett's Aquatics. And you know, it's been a, a fantastic time talking to you, Lucas. And thank you very much for joining me this uh, late, late, late hour of the night. I appreciate it. No problem. Just to touch on that last bit there, too, for people to do have questions every Friday night, I do Q&As at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time. So that actually fills in a lot of the question helps with all those comments and emails and stuff like that, taking that hour every week to talk and help everybody, which is great, too, because if I don't know something either, there's an awesome aquatic community that joins me in these Q&As. And if I don't know something, they more than likely know too. So it's it's just a good place to find knowledge for the hobby. And I appreciate you having me on here too this late in the hour. Of course, yeah. And I mean, you know, as somebody with 200 plus fish tanks, man, I mean, you know, if there's a question that, uh, that you're not able to point somebody in the right direction, man, I, I would be, uh, I'd be very interested to know what that question is. Um, so Lucas again thank oh, well you. <laughs> see that's the thing hold on now see a lot of people would assume that because I have so many tanks I must know it all in aquariums well you could do this hobby for a hundred some years and you'll never know it all there's always a new fish coming out there's always a new plant coming out there's always something even if you think you know it mother nature will contradict you and make you rethink it just something to think about. No, no, but to your point, though, uh, you at least, though, could help crowdsource and help them get that answer, though. So, if a guy with 200 tanks doesn't right. know it, I bet you know somebody that probably does or at least can point them in the right direction, right? So, if you've got, right. those, if you've got those questions and you can't find the answers on the forum, uh, hit up Lucas in his uh, live stream Q&A on Friday, you said 9.30 Eastern time? Correct. Awesome, man. So definitely, uh, I'll have to jump on there, check you out. I mean, nine thirty for you is only six thirty for me, so that's definitely doable for my old man schedule. So again, Lucas, thank you very awesome. much, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, and I hope to see you on a live stream someday. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.